been a great morning so far. Um, as we continue to celebrate the fact that Jesus has been raised. We talked earlier this morning, we saw the resurrection even from a guy like Peter after the resurrection in, in, in Acts and the letters. And during our Sunday school hour, we kind of focused on the Gospels. Well, today I want to show us, and, and I didn't really know it would work out this way, but I want us to see that the Bible, uh, the, the resurrection is a whole Bible reality, okay? Yeah. It's not something that was just conjured up 2,000 years ago. It actually goes back a lot farther than that, the talk of resurrection. So turn with me to Job 19. Job chapter 19, and I'm going to do my best to keep my Bible from blowing open. There we go. Job is right before the Psalms, so middle of your Bible, and turn left a little bit probably. Job 19, verses 23 through 29, give us what, amount to, what amounts to one of the oldest confessions of faith. A confession of faith is uh, not, not terminology we use all the time, but a, a confession of faith is a statement of beliefs. Uh, some sort of codified statement of beliefs. And and this almost amounts to, to a statement of beliefs, a, a, a confession of faith. It, it really shows us how even the most primitive Old Testament doctrine was uh, very full. Job's faith was not, you know, when we think about people who lived long ago and, and you know, we have these caricatures of cavemen who are, you know, ah, yeah. And, and I think sometimes, even as Christians living in the 21st century, we can be tempted to think about, you know, we've got technology, we've got, we've got better access to the Word of God than anyone ever has in history. We've got better manuscript evidence. I mean, even our modern English translations uh, have so much uh, more depth in, in, in the research that's been done to make sure we've got, as you know, to make sure we have the Word of God and First Peter even talks about how we have it better than prophets had it. We have more, more revelation has been given to us. And so sometimes we're tempted to think that, you know, that Old Testament was kind of caveman faith. But what we are going to see here is that Job's faith was actually very robust. It consisted of the same beliefs, the same teachings that we hold dearly today as New Testament Christians. So uh, we're going to see that in Job 20, uh, 19, verses 23 through 25. And ultimately, Job shows us how true saving faith has always looked outside of ourselves and for a Redeemer. And that Redeemer is revealed in Scripture, of course, to be Jesus. So let's read Job 23, or 19. I keep wanting to say the, the chapter and verses wrong. 19, verses 23 through 29. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how shall we persecute him? 
And what pretext for a case against him can we find? Then be afraid of the sword for yourselves. For wrath brings the punishment of the sword, so that you may know there is a judgment. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for bringing us together today. I thank you that there's no rain today. Uh, that uh, even even now it's feeling a little bit warmer. I thank you, Lord, that no matter what the weather is on any given Lord's Day or any given day we call Resurrection Day, Jesus has been raised. And so we have eternal life because He lives. We have the strength to live each day because You are the one giving us that strength through the Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we think about what your word says about all of this, I pray, Lord, that we will be eager learners this morning and that your Holy Spirit will enlighten us and, if necessary, convict us and that you'll receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. When you think of Job, the word that usually comes to our minds is suffering, right? We think of Job, we think of all the suffering he endured. And, and rightly so. Um, Job's suffering is practically beyond compare to anything you or I has ever faced. Anything anyone we know has ever faced. It, it's pretty incomprehensible. And yet, what we see in Job chapter 1 is that through it all, he was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That's what it says. Blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Uh, now, that does not mean Job was not a sinner. We know that all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone who has descended from Adam, which is everybody, is a sinner, except for Jesus Christ. 1 Kings 8.46, again, we think of all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a New Testament passage, Romans 3.23. But this was understood in the Old Testament too. 1 Kings 8.46 there is no one who does not sin. Okay? So, yes, Job was a sinner, but, and as we've talked about also this morning, he was a repenter. Job was a repentant sinner. He had turned away from his sins, and he faithfully followed the Lord, and he sought to, to have his family follow the Lord too. I'm not going to get all into that this morning, but, but you read Job and you see that very clearly. He was also a very blessed man. Job was a blessed man, earthly speaking. He had a wife. He had seven sons. He had three daughters. He was extremely rich. He was called the greatest of all the men of the East. Pretty lofty term there, the greatest of all the men of the East. And what happens in Job 1 is there is this scene in heaven. And it's the most familiar scene from the whole book of Job, really. It's, there's this scene in heaven in which God points out Job to Satan and says, Have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless. He's upright. And Satan says, Well, he's only worshiping you because look at how much you've blessed him. Look at how much you've given him. Look at how much he has. And so God says, Okay, Satan, you can afflict Job. And what, what, what happens? His oxen are killed. His donkeys, his, his, his camels are taken. His servants are killed. His children are all killed in one fell swoop. They die. And when Job is told this, he mourns and he, he falls to the ground, but he also worships God. He says, 
Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Yahweh gave, Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. And Job one twenty two adds, though through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. So, what happened next? God actually allows Satan to afflict his body. Sores, these, these boils, come up on his skin from head to toe. He uses broken pottery. I just I, I cringe thinking about it. He uses broken pottery to scrape himself. His wife says, curse God and die. Be done with this. And his friends come. And most of the book of Job is this dialogue between him and his friends. And they give him some not-so-good advice. They actually say that your sins are the cause of this. You're suffering on this because you are hiding some egregious sin. And Job is saying, really, I'm, I'm, that's not what's happened here. But it's in the middle of this back and forth that Job 19 occurs. And, and, and you know, he's experiencing the worst kind of physical pain, the most excruciating mental and, and emotional anguish. He's confused. Why is this happening? He's lost all he has, all he loves, except for his wife. Okay? And so he says in verse 20, which is right before what we've read today, My bone clings to my skin and my flesh, and I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. You wonder where that phrase, skin of your teeth, comes from? That comes from Job. Okay? And verse 21, Pity me. Pity me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. He realizes that God's in control of this. Job begs for mercy from these friends who are essentially slandering him, accusing him of hiding some awful sin. He's getting no pity from them, even when it seems like God is against him. So in verse 22, he tells his friends, Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? I mean, what more do you want? So, what we've got here is, you know, if ever there was a recipe for someone to turn their back on God, this is it. If ever there was a situation where somebody might be excused for checking out, this might be it. But that is not what true enduring faith looks like. And Job had true enduring faith. And... In the most unexpected circumstances, Job, in his sick and deteriorating body, he expresses this unbelievable faith in God. He, he clings tightly to hope. And that's what authentic Christianity is. That's what it's all about. Eternal hope amidst human agony. That is what separates real living faith from dead hypocritical works. And Job's faith, this ancient, primitive, authentic faith, centers on bodily resurrection. It's ancient because though this book is placed in the middle of our Old Testaments, Job is likely the first book of the Bible that was written. I don't know if you ever have thought about that or realized that, but but Job was probably the first book of the Bible that was written. Um... He had ten children by the time his sufferings began. He, he lived well before Moses, likely before Abraham. Um, Abraham had, had lived 140 years after 
Actually, Job lives 140 years after his trials. He has 10 children after, uh, or, or later on. I'll get into that later. Abraham lives to 175. Job probably lived significantly longer than that, over 2,000 years before Christ. But as ancient as this is, Job's hope is in a resurrection. And again, we think about that as a New Testament thing. But, but he's pretty much given up hope in this life, but he longs to be vindicated. Job knows that he's a believer. He, he knows he's not sinless, but he's blameless. He is a repenter. He longs to be vindicated. And his faith is such that he knows, he, he knows he will be. Do you know today that you will be vindicated, beloved? We come to verse 23. He knows he is about to say something important. So look, and we see what he says. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. What he's about to say needs to be remembered. You know, they didn't have paper and pencil and something. So when you talk about writing down something, it means something. Verse 24, that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Job doesn't just want words recorded on some scroll or some other primitive form of, of a book that could be easily destroyed. He wants what he's about to say engraved in rock. Maybe he means his gravestone, could be. Whatever he meant by that. Maybe he meant just putting it on a rock so that people could see it. And that's what people have done with this passage for, for four plus millennia since then. His words have been used on many gravestones actually. Job wants these words to be written down in stone for all time, and they were. He gets his wish exceedingly abundantly beyond all he could have imagined because this is the oldest of the recorded confessions, and it's in God's Word. It's in God's divinely inspired Word. And the truth of what he says here is so clear that, that it's hard to understand how someone who lived so long could express what Job expresses the way he expressed it. Even after my skin is destroyed, that is, even after my body has rotted away, yet from my flesh that has rotted away, I shall see God. He's sure that after his body is no more, still he will see God through real eyes through all of his suffering and his wife telling him to give up and his friends giving up on him, Satan afflicting him. God is sustaining Job's faith here. God sustained Job through his suffering. Job, if you think this is through the power of Job, no, Job didn't do this by his own power. It was God. What we see here is the truth of the second to last book of the Bible coming into play. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. That's what God does. And that's what God did here for Job. Job wasn't happy. But then again, joy does not equal happiness, does it? Happiness changes in circumstances. But joy is an inner contentment of the heart, no matter the circumstances. Joy is rooted in God because God doesn't change. 
Job had the joy that comes from real hope. Job had faith in his future when there was no reason to have faith in his future. And that comes from a saving relationship with God. As Romans 14.4 says, It is the Lord who is able to make His people stand. He does for His people what we cannot do for ourselves. You can't do this for yourself this morning, beloved. In, in spite of ourselves, God shows us grace. God manifests His mercy. God gives us faith. We, you know, sometimes we think about faith as the thing that we come up with. That's not what Ephesians 2 tells us. It says, He's given us grace through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. And, and that is the gift of God. This is what we see in Job too. And it works itself out in three truths that I want you to see here. Three things Job had a confident expectation about. And the first is redemption. Job had an expectation of redemption. Job had faith he would find redemption. Even though his friends were accusing him. They were asserting that it has to be your fault that you're suffering. Job knew the truth. And he knew that somehow, some way, and someday, he was going to be redeemed. Job pled for mercy from his friends that they weren't giving him any mercy. So it's almost as if he is wanting to evangelize them here. He, he's, he is skin and bones. If he dies, he wants these words to live on. He wants his words recorded. He wants them to be remembered. There, there's no written book to carry out. The Bible has not been written yet. This, this is the Bible playing itself out in real time. So he says in verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand upon the earth. And that should be a familiar Verse to, to, to most of us probably. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last He will take His stand upon the earth. And I don't, I, I really don't think Job probably understood all of the ramifications of what he was saying. I believe the Spirit was inspiring him here. In fact, I know the Spirit was inspiring him. But his words, man, how, how deep and powerful are these words? First, I know. Job doesn't think he knows his Redeemer lives. His faith is sure. Those words I know are so important. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. He says, To reach the marrow of consolation, you must say, I know. Ifs, buts, and perhapses are sure murderers of peace and comfort. Doubts are dreary things in times of sorrow. Spurgeon writes that as a man who knew a lot about sorrow, by the way. He's called the Prince of Preachers, but he battled depression, very much so. But knowing, not thinking, knowing there is hope makes all the difference. Job didn't think, he knew. What did he know? He knows, I know that my Redeemer lives. L-I-V-E-S, not lived. Lives. He knew his Redeemer was alive in the present. Even the verb tenses of Scripture here are inspired. Job knew his Redeemer was alive. And at the last, his Redeemer would take his stand. Job did not know when at the last would be. But he did know it would be. 
And that's the same for us today. We don't know when Jesus will come back, but we know He will come back. And somehow this Redeemer would would be someone alive to Job, but still alive when at the last happened. At the last is an ancient Old Testament way of talking about the last days, by the way. And in fact, it's not even just Old Testament. Jesus says in John 6, 44, he uses that term. I will raise them up on the last day. In short, Job knew his Redeemer would be ageless, eternal. And that's amazing faith. That's amazing confidence from a man disheveled in every human way conceivable. At the last, he will take his stand on the earth. On the earth is important. Job has confidence here that his Redeemer will be a man. That, that he, 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 he may not have understood the gravity of what he was saying, but, but this points us to the eventual incarnation of Jesus, beloved. This points us to the cross without which we could never be saved. Job confesses here his Redeemer was alive then, will be alive at the end, and that implies the the Redeemer will be a man, but he'll also be God. And that he will take his stand on the earth, inferring man, God, man. That's, That's high theology right there. This is ancient but timeless faith. The Redeemer is someone who pays the price to forgive a debt. The Redeemer pays a price to forgive a debt. In the book of Ruth, Boaz is Ruth's kinsman redeemer. He marries her to redeem the land that was in the name of the family of Ruth's first deceased husband. Earlier, Abraham acts as a redeemer for his nephew Lot, who was captured by enemies. Abraham actually goes to battle against the enemies and destroys them to save Lot. Likewise here, Job is confident his Redeemer is going to pay the price of his forgiveness and go to battle against his enemies and destroy them. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us, isn't it? According to Hebrews two fourteen and 15, he surrendered to the cross so that death, he would render powerless the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. And Job is picturing this Redeemer standing on the earth in triumph just as Jesus will return and stand upon the same Mount of Olives from which He ascended into heaven. Job knows his Redeemer lives. And without knowing everything, he's speaking of a man who is God. He's speaking of a Messiah. Of course, it's not all about redemption. The second truth is resurrection. We see resurrection, of course. And it's incredible, really, that someone living over 2,000 years before Jesus has such a a bedrock confidence in the resurrection, especially when you consider that many later Jews denied resurrection. And the Sadducees were the most powerful sect of Jews in the time of Christ. They were the chief priests. They were the ones who were the gatekeepers of the temple. And one of the things we know about the Sadducees is that they denied a resurrection. Not just Jesus, not just Jesus' resurrection. They denied resurrection, period. Um, the Greek philosophers of the day, they thought resurrection was foolish. 
That's why in 1 Corinthians 1 we see that Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ as foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. And not much has changed. Today, the idea of a once dead corpse living is something reserved for popular cable television shows. Not reality, right? And really, that's the case even for a lot of people who call themselves Christians. There are many people who speak and sing of Jesus, but they don't intellectually believe. They don't believe with their mind that He physically rose from the dead. There's, like, I, like I mentioned earlier, uh, in, in uh, I guess it was the Sunday school hour, there have been many people, many prominent people who are associated with Christianity who have said that and believed that. And if that is you this morning, if, if the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a stumbling block for you, then Paul has something to say, and we've already looked a little bit at 1 Corinthians 15, but he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and was buried, and that He has been raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And if Christ has not been raised, you, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, then those also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Beloved, what that's saying is that the, the fact of resurrection cannot be divorced from the gospel. It cannot be divorced from salvation. It cannot be di- divorced and separated from authentic faith in Jesus Christ. Job's faith was greater and more full than many who profess Christianity today. He was sure of a resurrection of his human body. He says, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see and not another. Even after his body is rotted, he's still going to see God with that body. Our present bodies will be resurrected, either to glory or to judgment. If to glory, then your body will be glorified. If to judgment, something a lot worse. A lot of people have the idea that we will just be in this spiritual place called heaven in some sort of metaphysical existence. But that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we will be in these glorified bodies, transformed, changed, flawless. But much like Jesus, when He rose from the grave, He was in His body, glorified, but in His body. And this is one of the non-negotiables of Christianity. Jesus was raised from the dead in the same body in which He was crucified. He was glorified. Changed such that some were confused at first when they saw Him. Remember that? Some people when they first saw Jesus didn't realize it was Him. They recognized Him uh, after they heard Him speak. You, you, you know, you could see the, where the nails had been. 
in Revelation even, you know, we think about that, even in Revelation, it will still be the same. Because he will appear as a lamb who has been slain, but glorified. And that's the way it's going to be with you and me, if we're in Christ. That's the way it would be with Job. He knew he would see God. God revealed that to him. The Bible hadn't been revealed yet, but Job knew this to be the truth. And he doesn't just want to escape from his sufferings. He wants vindication from them. And really, can we have vindication without resurrection? The answer is no. His body has been wasting away because of how Satan has afflicted him. His body will be vindicated. On the cross, Jesus suffered. He was innocent. He was pure. He was sinless. But he became sin on behalf of all who will ever place their trust in him. After he died... The Roman centurion famously said in Mark 15, 49, Truly this is the Son of God. But really, it's the, it's the resurrection that truly vindicated Jesus. Because it, that is what proved He was right. That's what proved everything He said was true. It proved His innocence. It proved God's satisfaction with the sacrifice He gave. He crushed death to death. As, as Paul writes in Romans 1, He has been declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus was vindicated. Job's confidence is that He will be vindicated. Lastly, reward. There's redemption, there's resurrection, there's reward. Job's confession declares the truth of this reward. He did not long for the return of earthly comforts. We don't see him here asking God, give me back everything that I lost. No, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But instead, Job's reward is to see God with his own eyes. A lot of us have lost a lot in this world. A lot of us will still lose more to come. I ask you this morning, beloved, are you wanting back what you've lost? Or do you want to see God with your own eyes? To see God and not another, that's what Job craved. With his very eyes, not other eyes. Our greatest reward once we pass from this life is not to walk streets of gold. It's not even to be reunited with loved ones who've gone to be with Jesus before us. That's not the primary reason Jesus came. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Our greatest reward will not be anything even eternally material. Our greatest reward will be seeing God with our own eyes. Having perfect fellowship with Jesus Christ with our own eyes. Flawless, eternal, sinless fellowship with Christ. If you are consumed with Jesus, that's your hope. This is the great hope of the saints. In Psalm seventeen, fifteen, David says, and it should be said, he says this in the midst of his own suffering. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied 
with your likeness when I awake. David longed to see God, and he was a man after God's own heart. In 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, the love chapter. For in now in a, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. There will come a day when every believer gets to behold God with his or her own eyes. And perhaps most applicable to you and me here this morning is 1 John 3, 2. And this is written to those who believe. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Meaning, not just that we will see Jesus as He is, but we will be like Jesus is. In verse 3, And everyone who has this hope, this confident expectation, this faith of a certain future, everyone who has this hope fixed on Him, purifies Himself, just as He is pure. Do you want to be more like Jesus this morning? Hope in His resurrection. Hope in His return. And to think we have more revelation than Job could ever imagine. In the time and place he said what he said. Even, even today, if the cross seems shadowy, if the resurrection seems fuzzy to you, we know so much more than Job did. 2 Timothy 1.10 Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Job hoped for that light. We know that light came into the world and will come again. As ancient as Job's words were, they express eternal truth and really cut to the heart about what it means to love the Lord. With, without the confidence in resurrection, we, we have no hope. We might as well go home. We might as well live for now and do whatever it will take to make us happy right now, because we have no hope. Without knowing, we will see Jesus. When at the last He takes His stand upon the earth, we will never have the courage to live for Christ in a world that is growing ever more hostile to Him by the week. We will never have the courage, we talked about how the disciples were told they would be His witnesses. We will never have the courage to be His witnesses if we don't have confident hope in His resurrection and our own. This morning, do you have not merely the patience of Job, as we sometimes hear, but the faith of Job? I think we ought to think more about the faith of Job than we do. Are you trusting in the one and only Redeemer who is God, who has accomplished this through His Son and won victory for all who will believe in Him? He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. Are you living in light of the fact that Jesus has been raised? Or do you remain dead in your trespasses and sins? God saves everyone who repents, turns away from their sins, and entrust themselves to the Redeemer Job hoped in. And if you are not like Job, if you're not a repenter, then I implore you today to trust in Jesus. Put your hope not in being good enough. Put your hope not in coming to church. 
Put your hope in the Redeemer so that you may know He lives. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us. I pray, Lord, that even now You will convict sinners, that You will convict the unrepentant, that You will drive them to Yourself. I pray, Lord, that You will grant to us faith. Lord, maybe today there is a Christian here who has weak faith. Maybe they are suffering. Maybe they are undergoing turmoil. And I pray that they can take comfort in the story of Job, who despite his suffering, had confidence in the Redeemer. Lord, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, they're going to die someday. Do they have hope? Lord, I pray you will grant grace and faith, new life, to anyone here today who doesn't know you by faith. Father, give us a zeal for your holiness and give us a fervent expectation of your Son's return. May we glory in our Redeemer. And may we know that He lives. In Jesus' name, amen.